I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Emerging market stocks have become eye-catchingly cheap, trading at price-earnings ratios that are historically very far below those of markets in the developed world. But with weak global trade and China's slowdown, are they the sort of investment bargains that are best left in the bin? On today's Money Show, we have an emerging market special. We've gathered a group of the world's most respected writers and commentators on these markets to explore whether retail investors should go where many of the world's professional money managers fear to tread. And for those that are brave enough, we've also called in a wealth management expert to discuss where emerging markets should fit in a balanced portfolio. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Naomi Rovnik, digital editor of FT Money, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues, James King and Jonathan Wheatley, plus special studio guest Liam Hallican, the economist and strategist who began his career here at the FT. We also have with us the FT Money columnist and personal finance expert, Jason Butler. So, remember bricks? We don't mean the building blocks, but that popular investment phrase coined by economist and now government minister Jim O'Neill and standing for Brazil, Russia, India and China. It used to hit the front page of FT Money quite a lot in 2010. That was a year when fund houses rushed to launch products to satisfy a huge appetite for investing in the BRIC countries. Fast forward to today and the term has dropped off the news pages after the investment case for these markets crumbled in the face of China's slowdown, a commodities rout. Warren Buffett said, however, that we should be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Unloved emerging markets are now looking cheap, which could be for a very good reason. I'm first going to turn to James King to discuss this. James is the FT's emerging markets editor and one of our foremost China experts. He's not only a Mandarin speaker and the author of several books on China, he's a veteran of reporting on Asia, having covered events from Tiananmen Square to Japanese deflation. James, in a nutshell, why is the Chinese economy slowing down and what effect is this having on other emerging markets? Well, I think when you strip all the noise away, China's problem is pretty simple. There is an investment drought. The return on investments for local governments and for companies is really very meagre in almost all sectors right now. So what we've seen is that last year, fixed asset investment fell to its lowest level uh, in many years. This has a big impact on the emerging world because China consumes more than half of the industrial commodities 
produced by the world, and most of those come uh, come from emerging markets. So uh, Capital Economics estimates that the value of resource imports, commodity imports from the rest of the world to China last year was down about 50% from its highs in 2014. This, of course, affects economies from Africa to Latin America and in other parts of the world. But it's not all negative because there are some uh, green shoots that are beginning to show through right now. Real estate sales are beginning to pick up, so the demand for for materials used in construction should also follow. Uh, the Chinese government unleashed a massive credit splurge in January, record numbers of, of new loans and uh, bond issuances. Um, so that should mean that Chinese investment might pick up sooner or later. So are you saying, James, that China's not just slowing down exponentially, but maybe also is <clears throat> is rebalancing, that, that word that economists love to use? I'm not really sure that it's rebalancing. I think what's happening is that the Chinese government is, is starting to re- revert to its old reflexes of pushing investment and trying to re- resuscitate the real estate market again. So that will lead to further imbalances in the future? Probably will. Um, but at the same time, consumers Consumer spending is is holding up, so I think we just have to keep a a bit of a working brief on that. And markets seem to want stimulus, don't they? I mean, short term investors seem to cheer each time the Beijing government applies stimulus. Perhaps it is steroids, perhaps it's a sticking plaster, perhaps it's storing up problems for the future. Do you think it's better if Beijing doesn't do that? Lets things slow down on their own. Personally, I think the situation in China is so severe, given the debt load and given, as I I mentioned, the investment drought, that if they didn't do it, the probability of a Chinese hard landing is really there. And I think that's why they've taken uh, these measures to unleash the credit taps, as we saw in January. And you've talked about commodities, but what about other emerging markets that could perhaps decouple from China? Perhaps they're transformers of commodities instead of producers. I'm thinking of South Korea, Taiwan, etc. Could could they go off on their own? Well, there is a movement within the markets these days, the so-called TICS countries. Um, so that is uh, uh, Taiwan, India, uh, China and South Korea. And these do tend to be tech focused countries that are not dependent on commodity exports. And I do believe that uh, they are relatively insulated to the emerging market slowdown that we see at the moment. So ticks, not bricks. Thank you, James. We're also do- joined by James's colleague, Jonathan Wheatley. He's one of the FT's most senior Latin America experts, and he's editor of our emerging markets service, EM Squared. Jonathan, you've spotted that some fund managers, for example, BlackRock, are saying there's value in emerging market investments. This comes although Brazil and Russia have slipped into recession. Emerging market currencies have fallen heavily against the dollar. Do you think we're really at a turning point now where EM stocks, corporate credit currencies could recover as the world's financial experts perhaps just collectively decide there's been too much pain? Well, the BlackRock are not alone. I mean, BlackRock, as you know, the biggest uh, fund manager in uh, in the world, uh, have taken a view that it is time to start stocking up on EM corporate credit, uh, which is a bold view in the in 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 the views of a lot of people. But they're not alone. Uh, and this would be the bonds issued by the, the bonds issued by by emerging market companies in their own currencies. We've seen, I mean, there's dedicated EM investors like Ashmore and Fidelity have been saying the same kind of thing over the last few days that either get into EM bonds, even get into EM equities. 
Um, I have to say, I mean, BlackRock itself doesn't necessarily have a huge amount of skin in the game. They're not, and, and that they're not a dedicated investor. The others, you would expect to say that they have what, not got anything else to do. sell. Yes. Yeah, exactly. BlackRock have a case. I mean, they say that uh, the dollar has stopped appreciating against uh, EM currencies. They say that that means that you will stop. You'll stop being hit by the dollar. You'll be able to get the the spread that EM corporate credit gives you over developed market corporate credit because that won't be blown away by currency depreciation. And they believe that turbulence on the oil market is nearing an end because now you've got. Uh, so that's bad, good for Brazil, good for Russia. It's good. It's good for them. Uh, but turbulent oil markets have been bad for everybody really so even if you benefit from a low oil price the uncertainty about the oil price has been destabilizing now so, back to those ticks yeah. um, one fund manager i spoke to recently has put 10 percent of his rather large fund in indonesia mm. which seems a bit out there but um his point is that indonesia is a big consumer of oil so as the oil price stays cheap Perhaps this is good for consumer spending. Well, yes, indeed, perhaps it is. And there's plenty of other places around the world that you can say, look, these, this country, India, has a big reform program. Mexico has a reform program. There are reasons to be optimistic all around the place if you look. And in fact, if you look in sectors, there are plenty of companies that are doing really quite well. But this is all a bit sort of down among the data. If you step mm. back and say, what, what is the EM story? Why do people buy EM assets? It's because emerging markets emerge and their economies grow more quickly than developed market and economies. And now they're not? Now they're not. I think if you take out China out of the mix, they are now growing more slowly than, than developed markets. Um, and they may make up a massive proportion of the world's GDP, but if that share isn't growing as quick, quickly as the rest, then, you know, where's so the story? So from faster and more risky, we've gone to slower and more risky. And the, and the problem is that the emerging market companies are much more in debt and their earnings are coming down. They are less attractive from those two mm. points of view than DM companies. So it feels like we've had the party and now it's really a, been a long hangover. I think a lot of people would say that EM's time will come again, but there's an awful lot of pain to go through before <laughs> that and there's a lot of very, very difficult reform to be done. Thank maybe. you, Jonathan. Finally, Liam Halligan, you're both an economist and a prolific commentator and broadcaster, and I hope I'm right in summarising that you've spent much of your career observing events in Russia and around the former Soviet Union. One of the roles in your current portfolio involves working with Jerome Booth, an investor and author who believes emerging markets are more important than many investors realise. Do you share that sense of bullishness? And if so, which emerging markets do you think retail investors should put their money into for the long term? Yeah, I do share that sense of uh, of bullishness. The emerging markets are, of course, three quarters of humanity now, uh, four fifths of the world's foreign exchange reserves, uh, and well over half of GDP uh, and rising. Of course, there's an awful lot of volatility because the equity markets of emerging markets uh, often, uh, in recent years, a derivative of what uh, Ben Bernanke or Janet Yellen have just said or even Mario Draghi or, or Mark Carney, uh, these markets uh, expressed in dollars and printed in the Financial Times <laughs> very much at the whim at the moment of Western monetary policy. But if you're um, a direct investor, if you're a big multinational company, you are often very, very heavily invested in these markets. Of course, those uh, kind of investments are difficult for retail investors to get exposure to, at least uh, without... Uh, suffering very, very punitive uh, fees. Uh, but are the emerging markets increasingly important in the world economy? 
Uh, absolutely, of course they are. They're not going anywhere. And turning to Russia, um, is it currently too unstable and volatile for anyone but the experts to invest in? Or will it be a long term success story? Well, of course, the Russian economy contracted last year um, by uh, about three uh, percent. This year, there's a wide range of um, estimates of what will happen from plus three percent if you're spare bank uh, uh, to minus three percent if you're most London based investors. Of course, again, that's a dollar GDP figure. Mm. It goes back to this sort of massive macro global macro currency overlay when you're looking at any emerging market. Uh, a lot of the uh, headline dollar GDP number and therefore the uh, uh, equity index number, whether it's uh, the locally denominated MySex or the dollar denominated RTS, will of course depend on the oil price. Uh, my theory, uh, I sound like Ann Elk out of uh, Monty Python for older, <laughs> older listeners, my theory is that <laughs> the best thing that could happen for Russia now in terms of the oil price is a short, sharp shock if we dip right down decisively below 25 bucks for a few months, knock out some of the shale producers, knock out some of the, in my view, rather overblown estimates of what Iran's going to do on the oil front over the next six to 12 months, then you could see uh, the geopolitical stars aligning the, a proper Saudi-Russia deal rather than the, the hints at a deal we've had so far and uh, a realignment of oil north of 40, which I think almost everybody would agree that's where the fundamentals should be. Oil hasn't got easier to find or extract. Uh, it's not as if the emerging markets have stopped demanding. Demand isn't, isn't falling. The demand is just growing less quickly in places like China. Well, we're almost out of time. Um, and there's one final question. It's a really difficult one. I'm going to give it to the whole panel. I'm going to give each of you 30 seconds to answer it. What effect does the monetary policy of developed world central banks have on how emerging market stocks perform? I'm going to put that to James first. Off you go. I get the least uh, time to prepare. So um, developed market quantitative easing has sent enormous amounts of money into the developing world. This has exacerbated situations of overcapacity, which exist particularly in places like China, which has brought deflation to uh, several emerging markets, and that deflationary wind has had huge effects um, in emerging markets and also in developed markets. Liam, do you want to give us 30 seconds? I think we will get a lot more QE in the West. I've been writing that for many years. I used to be laughed at. Now I'm not. Uh, Mark <laughs> Carney's just said there could easily be more QE uh, in the UK. If we do get more QE, it will be because the markets are in a really bad place. And of course, that will be bad uh, for the emerging markets. Uh, I think uh, it, it's right that, of course, the, the, the boom we had in emerging markets wa was largely because of risk on money trying to find a, a high okay, yield, yielding home. And now, <laughs> and now that's gone. Okay, and Jonathan, your 30 seconds, please. I agree. I think we will get more QE. I think the problems that it was designed to deal with have not gone away. I think it's exacerbated them, in fact. Uh, the stock of debt has gone up, while uh, any attempt to deal with that stock has been delayed by the magic powers of QE. I think it's driven up a huge amount of debt in emerging markets, and it's driven down uh, the profitability of those borrowers. So it's sent 
debt up, earnings down, and it's been noxious. Thank you so much. And thanks for our panel for that insightful discussion. Before our final item, a reminder that you can read this week's FT Money as part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday, or read online at ft.com slash money, or follow us on Twitter at FT Money. Now we've heard views on emerging markets from those expert journalists and economists. It's time to talk about the practicalities of investing in this asset class. I'm joined in the studio now by Jason Butler, the FT Money columnist and independent personal finance expert who formerly ran Bloomsbury Wealth Management before he headed off into the sunset to write and to educate kids about personal finance. Jason, what's your view on investing in emerging markets? Are they best left to the very brave with a lot of capital to risk? Or should they be a core part of anyone's ISA or sip no i think uh, they should be a, a, an essential element of the equity component of anyone's portfolio and why is that well because if you think about it emerging economies there's no real consensus as to what they are really there's different definitions but let's just consider they're countries generally that have undeveloped capital markets they have normally fast-growing populations large amounts of young people uh, they can be uh, natural resource heavy etc so they would you would expect them to experience higher levels of economic growth although they haven't been in recent years well they may not have been in recent years but you know it's like measuring the place from your home to your office of a six-inch ruler if we think about the trends that are happening there's a massive amount of merging uh, middle classes in India, Turkey, China, etc. Now, notwithstanding the current issues and problems which all economies go through as they grow, you've got to say to yourself, if you've got a 30 to 60 year time horizon, which most Mm. people have, does it make sense to have an allocation to those faster growing economies they don't come with extra returns without extra risk. And they tend to kind of go in and out like concertinas, don't they? The banks lend and lend, the economy grows really fast, and then there's some kind of financial crisis normally. Yeah, yeah. Things contract and then they go out again. Well, it's just what you have is you have more speculation in these markets. Mm. And essentially, because people are wanting to invest in the next best thing, or they, they, they overcommit uh, their funds in the, the world's full of hope, and then they sort of head for the hills when uh, the world turns a bit black. And when you don't have large domestic stock markets, that those inflows and outflows can make a huge difference. Now, what's the best way, however, to own emerging markets? Well, should uh, you pick stocks yourself? No, or no, no, no. I mean, should I you mean, pay a an expensive expert to no, pick them for you? No, not at all. The simplest way to own emerging markets is to have a fully diversified uh, index fund. The evidence shows that there's no extra uh, likelihood of an active manager outperforming the index. And the index fund itself is not perfect, okay, because it doesn't represent the full economic activity that's going on because these markets don't reflect all of the economic activity. So in other words, what you can invest in is not the same as what's going on in those countries. So I think an index fund of a globally diversified uh, emerging markets exposure for something between 10 to 30% of your equity element. Mm. So, for instance, if you've got 50% equity allocation, then that's somewhere between 5 to 15% perhaps. Great. Thank you. That was Jason Butler, and you can read his latest column in FT Money this Saturday. We'd love to know what you think about investing in emerging markets and asset allocation and money matters more generally. You can get in touch via email. The address is money at ft.com. You can tweet us at, at FTMoney, and you can leave comments at the foot of individual articles on our website. Additionally, if you have a financial conundrum you'd like us to help you solve, email us and we'll consider it for our Your Questions section. 
There's just time to tell you what else will feature in this week's issue. Our resident millennial FT writer Amy Williams is writing on the traps landlords lay for young renters. We also cover the fallout from the government's decision to raise the fees charged for probate and the risks of the growing market for investments called mini bonds. The Money Show was produced and edited in London by Adam Palin. We'll be back next week, but now it's goodbye from me and our studio guests. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.